Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Penny. Uh, it is not Tobias. I know that's what the uh, bulletin says. Uh, Tobias is, uh, was supposed to be preaching this morning. However, uh, about Friday morning or so, it became very apparent that he was sick and was not going to be able to preach. And some of you know that my family and I were supposed to be away for the weekend. And about Friday midday, because of the weather, we had to cancel our trip and head back here. And so, um, so Tobias is home, getting well, and y'all uh, get to be with me. Or I get to be with you, <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. And uh, we get to be together uh, around a passage in Philippians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Philippians 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, the passage will be projected on the screens in front of you. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. Now, when I was in college, um, I played baseball with a guy named Mike. Uh, Mike was from Miami, Florida. And Mike only played one year with us at our small school in South Carolina. Uh, it was my sophomore or my junior year, his freshman year. I'm not sure why he only had one year with us, but, but Mike headed back to Florida. Maybe the South Carolina uh, weather was too cold for his Florida blood. Maybe our small rural town was uh, too small for his uh, big city Miami life. I'm not sure, but, but Mike returned home. But over the course of that one year of Mike playing on our team, we got to know him both on and off the field, but we also got to know his parents. You see, his parents, like parents of many of the players, were there every weekend for our various games. You see, in college baseball, the most important games that you play are on the weekends because those are the, week, the games that are your conference games. And so it was common to see players' parents there, but, but most of the parents were only driving maybe 30, 40 you know, 60 minutes away, you know, and two hours away. But Mike's parents were making the trip all the way from Miami, Florida. And so every week they would drive the 10 plus hours to see Mike play baseball. Now, after a few weeks of this, a friend of mine who wasn't on the team, who came to a lot of our games, she decided she was going to ask Mike's parents a question. She went up to them and, and saw that they were coming up, making the drive, and she said to them, do you think Mike appreciates the time and energy, the sacrifice that you're making to support him, to come and watch him play. That's a pretty good question, isn't it? It's very thoughtful. She didn't ask, are, are y'all going insane 10 hours in the car one way and then on the way back? Like, are y'all getting sick of each other? <laughs> she didn't ask, like, is, is this costing you tons of money? Like, she didn't ask. What she asked was, do you think Mike appreciates all that you're doing for him. And Mike's mom said to her, well, we'll know if he does, if he does the same for his kids. It's pretty interesting. It's a great response. What Mike's mom was expressing was this principle that those who have experienced goodness, that have benefited from the sacrifice of others who truly understand the significance of the love that they have been shown, that that's going to elicit a response. And that principle of responding to goodness and sacrifice isn't just a principle that we experience in our world. That's a principle that is all over the Bible. It's a principle that Paul is speaking of in our verses before us. In fact, our passage begins with the word, therefore. 
Now, you know the old adage, when you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask and to investigate what is the therefore there for, right? And when we do that with this passage, we see that Paul's connecting to what we heard last week. And what we heard last week was the incredible work of Jesus on our behalf. That he humbled himself by taking on flesh, that he lived a perfect life and he died in our place. Right? We heard the wonderful news that Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and that he will reign and rule from there forevermore. And one day every tongue will confess he is Lord and every knee will bow before him as king. We heard that. That this is who Christ is and this is what he has done for us. And that demands a response. But what kind of response? Well, that's what the therefore is there for. So let's go ahead and read Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to this word, we ask simply that you would be present amongst us, that you would lead us, that you would direct us, that you would be glorified in our midst. And so, Father, I pray that you would use this weak vessel and that you would meet with us so that we would turn our gaze towards you and that we would uh, be Uh, overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of your word and your grace. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we see how Paul is calling us to respond, don't we? We see it immediately in verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Now, at first glance, this verse could cause a little bit of consternation. Right? It could cause some, some uh, feelings of uncertainty because it seems like, at first glance, that Paul is maybe saying the complete opposite of what he said in other places. Right? I mean, if you're familiar with the Bible or if you've been in this church for any length of time, you've heard, or at least I, I hope you've heard, that we make a lot out of grace. Right? That, that God is the one who, who showers us with grace. That God is the one who gives us love. That God is the one who is merciful to his people. And it is because of that grace, his mercy, his love, that we have salvation, that we have life. Right? I mean, we know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So there it is. We have grace, right? That there is nothing that we can do do to earn our salvation, that we cannot merit God's love or favor to us. But then we have this verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Is Paul flip-flopping? Is he changing his tune? 
I remember having a conversation with a man not too long ago. Well, it was actually a few years ago, so I guess it was a little while ago. But, but regardless, I was talking to this man, and in our conversation, he wanted to de-emphasize God's absolute sovereignty over our salvation, and he wanted to emphasize man's response. And he pointed to this verse. He said, see, there it is, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so therefore, it's about us earning our way. It's all about my good deeds. It's all about my good works, right? That's why God will show me favor. That's why God will bring me into his kingdom. But is that what Paul's saying in verse 12? Is Paul flip-flopping? Is he changing his tune? Well, of course not. You see, what he didn't say was work for your salvation. Do you see that? That's not what it says. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. Paul says work out your salvation. You see, we don't work to acquire our salvation. We don't seek to earn God's favor. But when salvation has come, when we are trusting in the one who did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on flesh and died on our behalf, when we are resting in his work, then we respond by working out our salvation. To work out of our salvation, not to earn our salvation. In fact, if we were to keep reading that Ephesians 2 passage, after verse 9 comes verse 10. And in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, after he has said that we have been saved by faith, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That sounds like Philippians 2 verse 12, doesn't it? that we are to work out our salvation. So to work out our salvation, to respond to the grace that God has given us, it's another way of saying that we obey, that we respond to our salvation with obedience. In fact, that's what Paul said in the very words right before the end of verse 12. He said, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. That the way that we respond to God's grace and his mercy and his care is with obedience. That that's what it means to work out our salvation. So what does obedience look like? Well, in the passage before us, Paul gives us three ways in which we are to obey. Three ways in which we are to embody what it means to obey. And what it means to obey is that we are going to be people of light, people of the word, and people of joy. That we respond to God's grace by, being, by obeying and being people of light. That's what Paul says in verses 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's who we are, that we are to shine as lights in the world. Now, what's amazing about that statement is that Jesus himself takes on that title for himself, right? We know in John chapter 1 that we're told that the light has come into this world and the darkness could not resist it. The darkness could not overcome it. And Jesus himself said, I am the light. But then Jesus takes that, that title that is attributed to him and he gives it to us. In Matthew chapter 5, he says of his disciples, you are the light of the world. And that's who we are. 
we're the light of the world, that we are to be people of light. And we know what light does. It hiddens the, it, excuse me, it reveals those things that have been hidden in the shadows, right? Light, light uh, pushes against the darkness and brightens a room. Light pushes against the darkness and stands in contrast to the dark. And that's what it means for us to be light in this world. That we are to stand in contrast to the dark. That's what he said, to be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, our lives are to reflect a different manner of life. A life that comes from Christ. Now, in saying this, to say that we stand in contrast from the world, from the darkness around us, there are many things Paul could have pointed to, right? I mean, there are many ethical things that Paul could have talked about, and he does in other places. But, but here, Paul zeroes in on one aspect of our life. Did you see what it is? It's our words. He began this section with, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I can't help but think that Paul focuses on our words because he knows that our words are a direct reflection of our hearts. I mean, that's what Jesus himself said, right? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so do you want to know what's inside a person's heart? Listen to the words that come out of their mouths. And I'm not talking about how articulate they are. I'm not talking about how big their vocabulary is. I'm talking about, are their words marked by grumbling and disputing and criticism? You see, our words will reflect what's in our hearts. In fact, Paul links our words with our holiness because he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that, we may be, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. You see, our words reveal if our hearts are blemished. So if we're going to stand out as light in the world, we do so by the very words that we use. And let's just be honest. There is nothing beautiful about grumbling or disputing. And there is nothing attractive about complaining or arguing. Right? I mean, think about from, from the very time of the wilderness generation, you remember when the people of God were brought out of Egypt and they were being led to the promised land. What did they do? Maybe this is where you went in your mind when you heard grumbling and disputing. What did they do? They're in the desert. They've been rescued. They've been saved. They've seen the power of God and they grumble at the Lord and they dispute with Moses. And it didn't stop there. Because we see the religious leaders, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, criticizing the Christ. And even in our own day, unfortunately, it seems that the posture of criticism as some sort of virtue has become common. But y'all, this kind of language, this use of speech, I mean, grumbling, I mean, it, grumbling, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Grumble. There isn't anything be beautiful about it. It is ugly. It is not of the light. It is dark. And the world doesn't need any more complaining. And the world doesn't need any more arguing or biting cynicism 
What the world needs is speech that reflects the light. I mean, just think about how our relationships would be affected if our neighbors and our classmates and, and even our fellow church members, if, if what, what they heard coming out of our mouths wasn't grumbling and complaining, but as Paul says in Colossians 4, speech that is always gracious, seasoned with salt. Words that are true and full of kindness. Y'all, that's what we're called to. That those who are trusting in Christ, who have been made children of God, our words are to demonstrate who we are, that we are light in this world, and they are to demonstrate whose we are, that we belong to the Lord, that we've been called the light of the world. And so obedience means being people of light. But if we're going to obey in this way, it means that also we need to be people of the word. We need, be, need to be people of the word. So we see in verse 16, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. Now I have to tell you, whenever I read the Bible and I come across those passages that talk about holding fast, standing firm, being immovable, steadfast, like I love those passages. I love those passages because it just feels like this call to, to be strong, right, and firm. And I mean, to be immovable, it's just, I mean, to be immovable, like, that, that's appealing, isn't it? That's appealing. It, it's this call. It, it, it makes me want to be those things, just hearing those words, because after all, who wants to be wishy-washy, right? Who wants to be immovable? Who, who wants to be swayed with every wind? Right? None of us do. And so I love that picture that we are given of being firm, of holding fast, of being immovable. But even as I love that image and, and I feel that, that, um, that appeal in my heart to be this way, I, I have to remember that what Paul's calling us to isn't being steadfast and firm in our own strength or some internal resolve. Right? That's not what he said. He doesn't say we are to be firm in our strength, that we hold fast to our abilities, that we rest in our own resolve. No, because those things, they won't lead to life. What Paul says is that we are to be firm in the word. That we are to hold fast to the word because the word tells us where life is from. That life is from Christ. And it is the word that tells us what life is to be like, that our lives are to be like Christ's life. So we are to hold fast. We are to be people of the word. And if we're going to be people of the word, it means we need to be people who are in the word. The great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, he once said of his friend John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he once said of Bunyan, Read anything of his, and he, you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. This man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. <laughs> I love that. Prick him. His, his blood's not O negative or AB or whatever other kind of blood we might have. No, it's bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. I mean, there are, is there a better thing that could be said of God's people? 
that the very word of God just flows from them. That they are saturated in it. You know, as I think about that, and as I hear Paul telling us to hold fast to the word, it, it can't help but make me wonder, what flows from us? What flows from me? You know, is, is it uh, whatever the new philosophical ideal is? Is it whatever the new political platform is? Is it, is it our hobbies? Is it our athletic team? Is it whatever it is that we are enthusiastic about in that moment? Is that the thing that flows out of us so that that is what everybody sees? Or is it God's word? Like, what are we known? Wouldn't it be wonderful if this church was known? And, and I don't know if we are or not, but it, that we would be known not just as the, the pretty church on 419, I get that a lot. Oh, you're the pastor of that pretty church on 419. It's like, it is pretty. Or that, that big church. Or, uh, or the conservative church. Or the progressive church. But what if we were known as the Bible church? The church where the Bible is proclaimed and where the people love the word so much that that is what motivates them and that's what, that's what directs them and that's what fills their speech and that's what fills their minds and that's what fills their hearts. That, that the Bible is something that we take in and, and we are directed by and it, it, it changes the way that we live and it fills our words so that, that people hear something different than what they hear in this world. Like what if that is what we would be known by? And we would hold fast, though. I mean, y'all, I got to tell you, that, that would be worthwhile. Because the truth is, is that it is foolish to think that we could work out our salvation and that we could obey the Lord apart from holding fast to his word. It is just folly. It can't be done. And so we are called to be a people of the word, a people of the word, and as we are a people of the world, we're, word, we're going to be people of light, and finally, we're going to be people of joy. Now, you knew that joy was going to show up at some point, right? I mean, we've said every week that Philippians is the epistle of joy, and that 14 times in this four-chapter book, this short book, Paul refers to joy and rejoicing. But what's interesting is that up until this point, so far in this book, every time that Paul has talked about joy and rejoicing, what he has talked about is his joy and his rejoicing, except for once. So his focus has been on his joy, but now in verse 18, he calls the Philippians to share in his rejoicing. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what is he wanting them to rejoice about? Well, we see it in verses 16 through 17. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So you see what Paul's pointing to. He's invoking this sacrificial temple-type language. Right, We hear it, the, the poured out as a drink offering, the sacrificial offering of your faith. So what is Paul talking about? Well, we have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
Now, oftentimes, when the people would bring a sacrifice to the temple, they would offer it before the Lord, right? They'd bring their fattened calf, they'd bring their, their bull, they'd bring their dove, whatever it was that they were bringing in that moment. It would not only be that that would be sacrificed, but sometimes, depending on the sacrifice, depending on the day, they would actually have a, pour, uh, a drink offering that would be poured out. And so the priest would take wine and pour it out and offer that as a sacrifice to accompany the sacrifice of the bull or the, the, the bird or whatever it is that they're sacrificing. In fact, in Leviticus 23, you can look maybe later today and see how uh, the different feast days, the different celebrations are described. And often, the sacrifice associated with those feast days would have this drink offering. And Paul is using that imagery, he's using that understanding of the sacrificial system to apply it to his relationship with the Philippians. And what he is saying is that as the Philippians' lives, their whole lives, their entire lives, are to be lived as sacrifices before the Lord. In fact, all Christians are supposed to live our lives as sacrifices before the Lord, right? That's what Romans 12 tells us. Present your bodies before God as living sacrifices. That as the Philippians are to live as a lived sacrifice before God, that Paul is saying that his life is a sacrifice alongside of it that his life would be poured out. And so what most commentators, and I wholeheartedly agree with this, what most commentators believe Paul is referring to is his impending death. That if even by his death, his life would be poured out, that he can rejoice and celebrate if it means the encouragement of the Philippians' faith. And that's why Paul rejoices. And that's why he celebrates. And that's why he invites the Philippians to have joy as well. But that seems strange to us, doesn't it, a little bit? That my life would be poured out in this way? Right? That he is willing to yield all of his life to God to fulfill this calling, even if it means giving his very life, being poured out so that the Philippians would be encouraged. So how is it that Paul can say rejoice, have joy? Because what this is pointing us to, at the very beginning of verse 16, what did he say? Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. The day of Christ. That is what he is looking to. It is this future day when Jesus will return and everything will be made new. It is that day when Jesus will return and we will dwell with him for all eternity. Paul is looking forward to that day and he is saying that in light of that day, if my life has to be given for the sake of this church, I will gladly give it. Because of what awaits me and because of what awaits the church. I will gladly have my life poured out. And so people of God rejoice because a day is coming. A day when Jesus will return. That is what he is rejoicing in. That is why he can have joy. That's why we are to be people of joy. Because of that future day. You see, that's what awaits not just Paul and the Philippians. That's what awaits all those who are trusting in the Lord. A future day when we will obey completely. And we look forward to that day 
But even as we look forward to that day, we do not sit idly by. No, we wait for it. We wait for it by working out our salvation today. We wait for it by living as people of joy, by living as people of the word, by living as people of light. We wait for it by living obediently today. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us not only life and freedom from sin and forgiveness from all of our trespasses, but that you have called us to walk faithfully with you. And so we pray that that's what we would do today and all of our days, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we would work out our salvation as people of light and people of your word and people of joy, that we would live distinctly from the world around us and that we would long and wait for that day when you, Lord Jesus, will return and we will dwell with you for all eternity. Until that day, help us to obey you and to do all this for your name and for your glory. And we pray in the name of Christ and God's people said together, amen.